Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, forward, prohibited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for October 19th, 2017, the President Pence edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C., alone in a studio. John Dickerson is elsewhere. Where are you, John? Of CBS's Face the Nation. I'm in Richmond. Hello, John. And Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is in New York. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. On this week's Gab Fest, the president creates another nonsense, stupid controversy with his bizarre behavior around U.S. service members, the families of U.S. service members who've been killed in action and a strange slander of President Obama. Then the mystery of Vice President Mike Pence. Can it be solved? Is he our next president? And then just when you thought the opioid crisis couldn't get any more depressing, a story about gross behavior by big pharma and uh, some interesting journalistic uh, investigation that that may have may have uh, ferreted out and changed some bad behavior. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and a slate plus segment about what Halloween costumes the people in Washington should wear this year. Before we forget, we have a live show next week in Chicago at the Merle Reskin Theater on Wednesday, October twenty fifth at seven thirty p.m. There's still some tickets left. Uh, you can go to slate.com slash live to get tickets to that show. We're going to have Kim Fox, the chief prosecutor of Chicago, will be there as our guest. It's going to be a great show at the Reskin Theater on Wednesday, October 25th, slate.com slash live. And also, there's still some tickets left for our Conundrum show live in Boston on December 6th at the Wilbur Theater. And those tickets are also at slate.com slash live. <laughs> I'm not even going to say, Wilbur. I'm not even going to like, we're not even going to discuss that. But maybe we can get They Might Be Giants, who will be our house band for the evening, to play the to play the Charlotte's Web theme for that. Get tickets at slate.com slash live. This is a grim spectacle, even by the standards of 2017. The controversy over whether President Trump slandered President Obama by accusing him of not calling the grieving families of dead sol- soldiers the related controversy over whether President Trump then told the widow of a Green Beret killed in Niger he knew what he signed up for, the invocation of the death of the son of General John Kelly and how President Obama may have treated that, the regular diet we've been eating of political incompetence, of warmongering, of private waste has been bad enough, but now we've added a truly stupid, grotesque, pointless, vile showcase uh, involving our dead service members. So, John, what is at the heart of this controversy? Why did it emerge? It didn't seem considered or pointed. It didn't seem that President Trump was, this was something he set out to to create, and yet it's right. become a, 
ridiculous big front page story. Oh, my God. And I forgot the whole thing about the other one with the President Trump had promised in June to pay somebody, a family of a, of another dead soldier, $25,000, and it didn't pay it until yesterday when the Washington Post called him on it. So... Anyway, it's amazing, I'd like to thing. Uh, delineate. I'd like to um, put a little corral around just one part of the story, and then and then the other two parts uh, we can talk about later. But one thing that the most striking thing to me is that I think what happened basically was the president was asked about if he'd contacted the families of these four dead servicemen, and he was basically it seemed like an in the moment defense of himself or slash elevation of himself over his predecessors. So I think you're right. It doesn't feel like a strategy. The military was one of the last institutions, although we should add the NFL in here because it was used also. The military was one of the last institutions that was kind of protected. And it wasn't perfect, but certainly relative to our other political debates, kind of protected from the political left, right, blue, red thing. And one of the things Secretary Mattis when we interviewed him a few months ago and that he said on and on is he thinks one of the greatest dangers in America is that we're tearing each other apart. And he is uh, thankful that it hasn't gotten into the military uh, any more than it already has. And that he hopes for a day when people can debate and argue and then still be uh, friends again. So now the, in two important ways, the president for his own purposes has brought the military in the middle of these kind of most heated debates we have first by claiming that the people who kneel during football games are denigrating the service of those who fought for the flag or fought under the American flag. Uh, and then now this claim about calling families, he's basically saying that I'm on the side of the military and Obama and the Democrats are not. And that's really dangerous. And he did that all on his own. He chose to do that. And that's, that's really playing with fire. Let's get into that in a second, John, because I think that that is a really good framing. It is also, you touched on this a second ago, it's also shocking his need to put himself at the center of this discussion, that the whole context of it was, this is what I did. He's, it's a moment where you're supposed to mourn those who have served and who have fallen in the service of the country. And it's all about who he is. Right. It's a terrible time to be a narcissist. And it's it's amazing. I mean, I guess we should lose our capacity for for shock with the narcissism of President Trump. But it's pretty incredible that that his entire mode of analysis around the death of those he's sent into battle is, oh, it's, you know, look at what I've done. Look at me making calls and look how much better I am not to actually spend time honoring their service. It's really shocking. The thing is, this is just not a supposed to be a debate because this don't is not going to end. Don't we imagine that he hates making these phone calls? Like, of course, every president finds it difficult to make these calls. And I feel like every other former president or at least George W. and Obama talked about how hard these calls and contacts were, that it was such a burden on them. I mean, Trump must find it really hard to call up the emotional grace to do it. And also, I feel like with all of these military actions that go awry, he doesn't want to take responsibility. And there's an element of failure that he just wants to run from. And so, the, you know, the the thing that he's reportedly said, you know, he knew what he signed up for is a way of distancing oneself and not taking responsibility. And of course, you know, it's one thing to have someone in private life who's like a bloviator have that attitude. And then it's another thing when it's the president. President's 
if we're going to have our government the way it exists, it's it it's not certain that a president should call every person who falls in the service of their country. That's not been a standard that we've had before, um, in parts because we've had wars where, you know, sometimes you'd be on the phone all day if that were the case. But the distance between a president and the orders he gives and the people who carry out those orders, there's a reason to maintain that because of what you said, Emily. I mean, it, it, any president, the weight of this, um, and I remember talking to people in the Bush administration about how the president had to be careful about who he reached out to, no matter how awful the story, because he would set the expectation that he would have to then call everyone. And if somebody didn't get a call, then they would think right. somehow their service wasn't right. worthy of the other person's. What Am I remembering correctly? Wasn't there a big scandal in during George W. Bush's presidency about there was a I'm embarrassed I can't remember this but the woman whose son had died in Who service was protesting. Oh, was yes. protesting she was protesting and, and, right. and wanted to meet him and he never met with her right yes right. wasn't she like yes. standing outside of events and that was upsetting but wasn't she also protesting the war Cindy Sheehan Cindy, Cindy Sheehan, Sheehan. Right, right. right so then you could argue and I'm not criticizing but that the politicizing of the question of mourning and meeting with the family is one that's coming from the family whereas this time we're seeing it come from the president I mean one thing I found really unsettling was reading some of the Fox News I guess web coverage I haven't been watching television but just reading the way it was being spun as a story in which the politicization came from the family and the democratic congresswoman and from the press like sort of blaming the press for finding that story of the person who said that trump promised twenty five thousand dollars that he didn't give as if like it's coming from the other side and it just struck me as one more time in which we are seeing alternative facts as well as alternative opinion just completely different presentation of a news story i i questioned whether frederica wilson the congresswoman who brought that up should have done that i did think it was a little i thought it was off base for her to take you know what's fundamentally a private conversation between the president and a widow and to make news out of it and i'm sure president trump i'm perfectly I'm perfectly willing to believe that President Trump handled it poorly and didn't express empathy in a way that you would expect. But I'm not sure that anyone was served by that that piece of it becoming a scandal. I I agree. Although what? the widows in the middle of this then said that she confirmed the congresswoman's account. She didn't say, I wish that she'd never reported it. And it was a call that was on speakerphone. I mean, that's not really the same thing as a totally private call. And then we have Trump saying that the congresswoman is lying, adding to this. So I don't know, maybe you think that because it was Wilson who sort of, you know, hit first on this one. Yeah, that that. But I think like it's a little much to say. I mean, if the widow of this fallen soldier had said, like, please give me my privacy, that's one thing. But that's not actually what happened. And, you know, maybe it was really hard to listen to that call. It sort of sounds like it was. Shouldn't we grant her the privacy and not make her have to ask for it. I mean, given that she's dealing with the death of her husband and what's, you know, a super hypercharged uh, political moment that she doesn't, you know, have a lot of control over. Well, you're um, assuming uh, that Wilson didn't like just did this spontaneously on her own without asking permission. And maybe that's true, but I don't think we know that. Well, even if she were given permission, is this really like is your response to this to sh- throw Maisha Johnson in the middle of a in the middle of a huge national fight. 
I mean, isn't that up to Myesha Johnson? Like, uh, that's not yeah, what exactly. you would choose. Not up but, to the not up right. to the congresswoman. Right, but I'm not sure that we know that how Johnson felt about it. I mean, that's like you're assuming a lot there, I think. Maybe that's the case, but I haven't read anything that suggests that Johnson was unwillingly thrust into the middle of this. Certainly thrust. Right. Well, I guess my default position would be don't thrust unless explicitly told to go out and make a big deal about this, which seems so... You know, I mean, if the maybe the maybe that's right. Maybe Maisha Johnson said, "Go out and tell the world about this." I think that's that's so would surprise me. What do you guys make of President Obama being silent in the face of all this? This President Trump's original comments, putting down Obama, really infuriated President Obama's former staffers, Alyssa Mastromonaco, I think I'm pronouncing your name right, who was Deputy Chief of Staff for the President for President Obama, tweeted that this was a fucking lie and that president Trump was a deranged animal, which was pretty, pretty strong words, <laughs> frank and frank and honest exchange of views. But why do you think that the president Obama himself has, has not spoken? I guess there's no, there's no gain, Emily, right? Yeah. I mean, what's there to say? Like he tried to handle this differently. I also think that John, you know, the point you made earlier is right. It's presidents don't call every single fallen soldier. And I think also President Obama had other people, you know, posting photos of him meeting with the families in the White House. Like the rec, the historical record is clear. I don't know what else he could really say that wouldn't seem again to just be adding political fuel to the fire. And I think he's been pretty trying pretty hard not to do that unnecessarily. Do you think politically, John, going back to your original point, that this dragging of the military and attempting to put President Trump and the military on one side of a divide and President Obama and Democrats presumably on the other, do you think that is going to be effective in this case. It's clear that the military is a conservative institution generally. I mean, I think mm-hmm. if you if you looked at how soldiers vote, they I think they vote and officers vote. They vote for Republicans more than they vote for Democrats. But as a kind of unifying national entity, is the president going to succeed in fracturing that? I don't know. I mean, that's the the worry here is that um, now everybody's got to take sides. And where you're, you know, where you take sides depends on who you, whether you support President Trump or President Obama. And you kind of have a default position based on that, not based on the underlying institution. And that just means it's just like every other damn thing in life now. And the question is, who who does the reset here of this? Who resets with the simple proposition that presidents all love uh, the people who fight under their command? Period. Moving on. The like these stories now that are like the number of people that Trump did call or didn't call Obama did call or didn't call. It just uh, it feels like we're talking about any other thing. And that in and of itself is bad. Do you think we're going to get to the point where everything is political, like Doritos are political, shag carpet is political, that no matter what the thing is, there's, you're going to have to be it's going to associate with with one side or another. That's what it feels like where, where we're heading. I think we we're pretty much, uh, you <laughs> Practically know, already there. there with football. I mean, that's I was talking to somebody last night who's, you know, kind of a Republican, uh, but not a Trump supporter and who said, you know, I'm just really angry. I wanted football to be, you know, that's what I go do for fun. I don't want to think about politics when I'm watching football. And I don't want to think about whether this person is or isn't patriotic or does or doesn't respect the troops. I want to watch people run towards the end zone and succeed or not succeed. That's like all I want. 
now it's, you know, permanently a part of our conversation now. Or not permanently, but anyway, it's part of our conversation. And now the military is in that mix too. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame it was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The New Yorker's unstoppable Jane Mayer profiled Vice President Mike Pence this week. The gist of the piece was, hey, liberals, if you think Trump is bad, Pence would be worse. A full-scale, basically competent, Koch brothers acolyte, a corporate republicanism uh, at its finest with a strong side salad of social conservatism. In Mayor's telling, Pence is a bit of a non-entity, but who harnessed his uh, wagon to the Koch's ideological movement, as well as his own conservative religiosity, and is now infusing the Trump administration with Cokeism, uh, and so that Pence's control of the transition process or his influence on the transition process brought Cokeians like Scott Pruitt and Betsy DeVos into the administration, Ryan Zanke. Mayor also strongly suggests that, that Pence is preparing for his own presidential campaign, which of course he would be, and which could come in 2020 or 2024, one, one assumes. Emily, was there anything revelatory for you in the, the story about Pence? What I was really interested in was the sort of toggling back of in back and forth of influence from the sort of Coke, more straight laced, you know, let's like cut taxes. Oh, by the way, um, you know, the Coke brothers value went up 13 billion last year, I think to 97 billion. Jane Mayer was tweeting about that this week, too. So this sense that, you know, we have these really determined people who want deregulation and want to be able to make as much money as possible, essentially, and that Pence was down for that project. But then there's this divide, sort of, between the Koch interests and the interests that the sort of populist part of Trumpism represents in the form of Steve Bannon. So you have these, like, really critical quotes from Bannon in Jane Mayer's piece about Pence. And you can sort of see behind them, like the Kochs on one side and then the Mercers who are funding, you know, the Bannon uprising on the other. And I don't 
totally understand how the <laughs> whether there are really deep differences between these people or whether they agree on like 90 percent of an agenda. And so then they like viciously fight about the last 10 percent. It's just kind of confusing. And it shows, you know, what happens when you have one party rule, which we have right now, which is that it magnifies the importance of policy and cultural differences on one side because they're in control. What are those distinctions? Well, I mean, Pence certainly seems more socially conservative, right? So you have, you know, this anti-abortion agenda. He was signing bills that, you know, that got Indiana a, a lot of embarrassment in the LGBT realm. But that's not really Kochian. That seemed no, more no, like, right. right? That was like Pence's own Christianity speaking out. But then you have, you know, Bannon basically warning that if Pence is president, he'll be a tool of the Koch brothers and that that's very different from Donald Trump. But like uh, in the end, policy wise, when you look, for example, at the tax cut package that the Republicans are trying to pass, how much difference is there really here? Yeah, I don't I mean, I mean, Mike Pence is a representative of of basically the mainstream of the Republican thought. Uh, Donald Trump is not in the mainstream can of Republican I, can, thought. Can He's not a, a Republican. Can, we, can I just pa- pa- start to interrupt you, John? Can I just pause? Yeah. For the idea that Mike Pence, who by the standards of you know ten or fifteen years ago, is extremely conservative, extremely conservative. The idea that that he is at the heart, the center of mainstream conservative thought, a Republican thought, is really just a testament to how far that party has moved that's all go well continue but i guess i by that but by that what i meant was he's for deregulation and tax cut he's the sort of the paul ryan mitch mcconnell you know whatever we can do to get to these goals and then he on the on the social issue stuff is further to the right now obviously during george bush's presidency he was um he was kind of you know you would have put him in the freedom caucus if it had existed at the time so even as I say he's in the mainstream of Republican thought, I guess what I really mean is relative to Donald Trump, who has been all over the lot. I mean, Donald Trump came to the job without a like roster of people. He ran as a Republican, so he picked the Republican roster, and the Republican roster has been supported by and created by and the large funders in the party, which is the, you know, almost certainly the Koch brothers. In other words, if you'd had Scott Walker, you'd have the same cast of people. Most people who've been involved in Republican politics are getting their money from the the Koch brothers at some level. I guess what I'm trying to figure out with this piece and with the administration itself is whether Mike Pence was there or not. A lot of these people would have found their way into the into the Republican ranks. One of the things that comes out in in Mayor's piece about Pence is that he does seem to be a nice guy. Like people think he's you know he's kind of a nice guy. He's always been super ambitious and had his eyes on the main chance. But he's you know he's he's not a he's not a bad human being but he has put himself in the thrall of a sociopath um and he has been unwilling to kind of do anything to to challenge that or when when trump has been called on his grotesque human behavior on behavior that is unchristian indecent lascivious pence has done nothing about that it does suggest emily that he's not someone who is likely to make any hard choices in life well, right. I mean, this is the Faustian bargain. He can only remain in office. I mean, I guess this is actually not true. He can remain in office forever. That's the power he has is that Trump can't fire him. But he can only be a player if he's obsequious. That's like the demand that Trump 
seems to require. And so, you know, that obviously limits his ability to stand as any kind of moral counterpoint. You know, there are also some interesting, like, actual policy moments in Jean's piece that illustrated this, like a big fight over whether to admit any Syrian refugees into Indiana, people who'd been, a family who'd been vetted for years, who um, the Catholic Church in Indiana very much wanted to resettle, since this is a cause that is important to Catholics and other people of other religions to be welcoming, etc. And Pence blocked it for political reasons. And again, you have this sort of move toward the easier political stance or what seems to be politically required as opposed to some other kind of larger sense of, you know, purpose. And so I guess I emerged from this profile with the feeling that's been familiar to me from the the beginning of the presidency, which is that a Pence presidency would have smoother edges. Like we would not be having some big fight about Gold Star families or the NFL. It would be much easier to ignore. But, you know, presumably the agencies would be humming along, making a lot of changes the way they are now, the EPA, et cetera. The Republicans in Congress would probably be happier and passing something. And so it might very well be that, you know, the basic thesis that liberals would be unhappier in the end, that a lot would be policy-wise would be changing, but there'd be less fuss about it. That seems right. And then I guess you balance that against what we were talking about earlier, which is this really dismaying sense of like the whole social fabric eroding and division for division's sake. It's hard to imagine Pence being particularly effective in that way. He just like that doesn't seem like his thing. I think the policy would be roughly the same either way. One thing, though, that is that is that at previous parts of his career, the vice president has paid a lot of attention to at least the. The hymnal of kind of the there were some boundaries in politics, obviously, after he ran and he took that pledge about no longer doing negative campaigning. He at some level hears that call that you're supposed to behave a certain way. And then one of the the criticisms people have made is that when he then uses his stature to cover then for the president. So for after the you know, after the, the Access Hollywood tape, when he said that he was grateful the president had expressed remorse. The president didn't really express remorse, the candidate. He he said it was locker room talk and sort of let's move on. So he acts as a cover for some of this behavior. But if it were just him, I think there would, uh, as I guess I'm basically agreeing with you, Emily, about the Gold Star families. But I also think he would probably work to try to do what normal presidents, uh, normally presidents have done, which is try to, you know, reach out to the other party. I'm not saying he would succeed and I'm not saying that there would be, you know, thousands of bipartisan bills, but President Trump has almost not ever, except for the like brief little moment with um, Schumer and Pelosi, which it was evanescent, has not really even nodded to those traditions. So I guess that would be one place where you would see uh, would would expect a difference. One of the things that struck me in reading about Pence is Pence is kind of like it doesn't seem like he's particularly smart. He's good, a good talker, and he's clearly was a great talk radio host and he has a nice demeanor about him but there's this very effective local grassroots public policy ideological efforts that have been made Uh, he comes out of pence comes out of this heritage backed indiana think tank there is a lot of ideological training and a lot of resources and and preparation that's taking place at a local level of conservatives who want to have a role in politics and pence is kind of a clear a triumph of, of that and I wonder if that uh, if the left can learn anything from that. What do you think, Emily? 
Well, I think he's perfectly smart enough, right? That if you have these model bills that you can get behind you and you have, um, you know, lots of position papers from the Heritage Foundation, uh, you know, you have backing for whatever positions you want to take. The agenda becomes pretty clear and you can exercise power effectively without being like a genius. You just can kind of roll it out. Um, I think Democrats tend to be more divided along those sorts of lines. I mean, an organization like ALEC, the American Legislative, whatever the E is, Council, which has been so good at creating model bills that then different Republican legislatures and state houses pass around the country. The Democrats don't seem to have an operation that works quite like that. Although, you know, to give them some credit right now, the activism on the left has been pretty strong. And certainly they have position papers and ideas and like, evidence supporting them. They don't they just don't tend to get adopted in the same kind of uniform way where you have the feeling that like, okay, anyone who's like pleasant and a good spokesperson could make this agenda propel itself forward. There's that funny thing. I mean, just to the pleasant piece of it. The reason Pence seems to be vice president is that Trump ended up having to spend an extra day in Indiana because his plane blew a tire and had dinner with the Pences and liked him, but that Trump seems to think that Pence looks like a vice president and is always talking about how he look at look at that guy. What is it? He's straight out of central casting or what some other phrase like that. So the Pence doesn't isn't sort of some uh, policy genius. He's not. He's he's smart enough and he's good looking in a very straightforward. This guy looks like a Republican presidential candidate kind of way. And then to Bannon, at least in Gene's piece, Bannon talks about him as a kind of like necessary sop to the Kochs and his part of the right. And and that kind of so that allowed for him to come into Trump's tent. John, let's let's close on the Bannon question, actually, which is, is do Bannon and Pence actually represent, as we've hinted at, two different parts of the Republican Party. And what is Bannon up to? Bannon Bannon supplies the kind of most pungent quote in the mm-hmm. mayor piece. And then Bannon also is engaging in this campaign to, to fund challengers to a lot of uh, in a lot of Senate races. Well, it is his quotes in the piece are fascinating. The most interesting part of the piece, I think, is and then at one point he says, you know, if Mike Pence became the reason it would be bad is if Mike Pence became president is that, you know, then he would be sort of the the president of the Koch brothers. Um, we should remember that the president, President Trump, as a candidate, was very clear about the relationship between big money and the Republican Party and Republican politicians. He said it made them puppets. He particularly said anybody who went to the Koch brothers' annual meeting was there uh, to bow down to their puppet masters and that would then be a puppet of the Koch brothers. When he talked about draining the swamp in the course of the campaign, that's what he was talking about. They've changed the definition of what that means for a variety of reasons, including the fact that when you need off-the-shelf staffers to staff up all these agencies, you need people who've been lobbyists. And presumably, if you're draining the swamp, you don't fill your administration with lobbyists. But that's what he said. Like, that was the point. That's the Bannon message about um, corporate interests, which have, uh, you know, which are support free trade and which support the policies, the Koch brothers. Um, well, I don't even want to say that. Just the, the, the relationship between money and getting people to do their bidding and not the bidding for the forgotten man. That's the Bannon view. And it was the president's view. I, but you can't run a presidency that way. So that's the tension here. But it gets very sloppy because also there were several strong quotes in the piece about how Mike Pence is, an, is necessary because there's kind of, you know, crazy, chaotic 
president doing his disruptive thing, which is what he was elected to do and what um, he wants to do. But like but but Bannon and everybody recognize that that you can't do that alone. So you have to have a connection to the rest of the party. And that's the Mike Pence is the bridge. He he's necessary, but you wouldn't want him to be president seems to be the Bannon view. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. CBS's 60 Minutes and the Washington Post teamed up on an amazing story this week, how the pharmaceutical industry, particularly a portion of the industry that distributes drugs rather than makes them or sells them directly, but distributes to pharmacies, pressured and lobbied Congress and and uh, the agencies and the president's president Obama's uh, administration to ease back on trying to limit excessive opioid distribution by pain pill clinics. The story comes out of a whistleblower, former DAA official named Joe. I'm not going to sure I'm going to pronounce his name right, but Joe Ranazizi, who told CBS and the Post how he and the drug diversion office that he ran tried to stop these three large distributors from filling obviously shady orders. There's an example, an incredible example of the pharmacy in a West Virginia town that has fewer than a thousand people that ordered nine million hydrocodone pills over the course of some years. In 2011, these drug distributors who didn't want to be constrained in who they could distribute to and at what scale started in, in this telling of CBS and the Post, started pushing back against DEA and tried to get the DEA to ease up on them a little bit. And in 2013, a Pennsylvania congressman named Tom Marino and then a Tennessee congresswoman named Marsha Blackburn, both Republicans, sponsored a bill to get the, the, the purpose of which was essentially to take away the DEA's authority to freeze suspicious shipments of opioids. The bill had been strongly pushed by industry. Uh, they spent, according to some numbers, $102 million lobbying for this bill to pass. It passed without any opposition. It was signed by President Obama. It's gone into law. Ranasizi, who had who'd opposed this easing up on drug distributors, was pushed out of DEA, according to his own telling. And Tom Marino, in fact, had then been put forth as the drug czar for President Trump. There's a lot of moving pieces in this. So, Emily... Was there a scandal here? Uh, Marino has now withdrawn his name as drug czar after the story came out and there was outrage about it. But is there a scandal here? And if so, what is it? Yeah, this is a really interesting story. I mean, it seems like the there are folks at the DEA who are furious and feel like their ability to try to address the opioid epidemic by blocking distribution was really hampered by this law. And, you know, there's like a big whistleblower in this story and um, a long law review article by a former DAA official making these claims. When you look at the actual change in the wording of the legislation as a layperson, it's a little hard to see 
how this change of wording could have had this enormous consequence, but it has that flavor of the kind of story that makes you think that Congress is passing things where the fine print mean enormous amount and somehow it didn't break through. This law was passed like without even an official roll call vote and just sort of snuck along and that, you know, then you get the sense like maybe Dan Marino was in the pocket of the drug industry. I wonder if there's like a more complicated story about the distribution of opioids that also includes the doctors who are writing the prescriptions and the prescription services that are filling those prescriptions at huge volumes in a lot of parts of the country. I felt like we were only seeing one part of this larger puzzle to explain like the giant apparatus of supply behind um, the opioid epidemic. And that was confusing to me. But it was interesting to see a story about what looked like a bad law actually have a consequence for a potential Trump nominee. And it made me think, I mean, first of all, Trump and the administration had no allegiance to this law in particular. And I guess they had no real allegiance to Marino either. What did you guys think? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I was confused by this in part because this law only just took effect. But obviously, the opioid epidemic has been rampant for a decade. And so the, and the, the DEA had these tools for the last decade. So so they weren't deploying them very actively and effectively. If this was such a big deal, why hadn't they done more to constrain beforehand? And I think part of it is that there was a lot of ambiguity in the law that preceded this law. One claim of the uh, defenders of the drug distributors was that the problem was that the law was totally ambiguous and that they weren't sure what was going on. They need they wanted this law in place so that it had more clarity in it. Yeah, and I I share your a little bit of your confusion here, Emily. That there's we have the drug manufacturers who are making these making these drugs, and we, the U.S. now makes and consumes eighty percent of the world's supply of opiates, eighty percent, and we're three percent of the world's population. Um, and so the drug manufacturers have a role, the distributors have a role, the doctors have a role. The state regulators have a role. It's weird that this blew up as the big story because it doesn't feel like this to me is the the main crime that's going on. But I don't know what the main crime is. Well, if nothing else, though, um, one thing that struck me is that it, it, you're right. The, the the epidemic was fully galloping, and I guess the and this legislation didn't certainly didn't cause that. But in the face of that gallop, like the fact that it could pass as, as I suppose the question in the aftermath of it, though, what strikes me is that this could have been and should be presumably um, if you think about a president who's willing to pick fights seemingly in all kinds of any direction where there are no barriers, here is an epidemic that has hurt his voters really, um, you know, in a kind of direct way. And He's not on the hook for it at all, except for having named a, a drug czar who is associated with this story. But, I mean, he's not – he didn't sign the bill and so forth. That he could jump all over this. That um, for a guy who likes to do things that show his base, he's attentive and get them. But it just – it it seemed ready to, to – uh, in another kind of presidency and another kind of politics where you would have imagined a president jumping on this and there's just and been very little uh rosenstein at the at the um justice department said he's very concerned about the story and he's going to look into what the dea you know whether the dea needs more tools to carry out its mission that sort of struck me from the the general kind of slow-footedness of the trump administration on the opioid issue overall it's um, amazing 
is just really yeah. it just it seems like such an easy trick for yeah. him to pick up. I mean, there's 64,000 people that, that we know of who died, and there are these estimates that's many more. Last that, year. Yeah, yeah last year. And that, that the deaths are actually much greater because there are a lot of deaths which aren't being reported as opioid-related, which probably are. And it's something which would have conservative and liberal support. It's also not going to be – I mean, the solution in the 80s when there was crack, it was just like let's lock up black people was basically the solution and give them really long sentences. And that's – and so we know that this time it's not going to be – you know, for basically for racist reasons, it's not going to be a, a punishment solution, which leaves the opportunity, it leaves a huge opportunity for conservatives and liberals and rural and urban to come together on something and save lives and reduce misery. And it's weird that there's been so little. But mm-hmm. is it weird? When it's such a huge issue and where everybody, everybody's on the same team. Why is there so little action? So I would say that because the solution is messy and would require really sustained paying attention in order to accomplish something, and then Trump would set himself up. I mean, I guess he's really good at you know praising himself and taking credit no matter what the outcome is, but it doesn't at all strike me as the kind of fight he's been interested in waging. I mean, what? So what we've seen him get really behind in kind of fits and starts and bursts of energy are taking down Ob- Obama's legacy and Obama's accomplishments, right? He really likes that. And that helps explain mm-hmm. climate change actions and Iran and obviously repealing Obamacare. But other than that, I mean, what's the proactive Trump vision? You know, I guess you could say like a trade war, but that hasn't really gone anywhere. Even, you know, renegotiating NAFTA falls into the camp of dismantling the accomplishments of the past. I guess that's a Bill Clinton accomplishment. I don't see the way in which Trump's really deep and strong connection to his supporters, which seems like very real and continuing. I don't see how that translates into like a real, you know, let's start this hard war on opioids together, right? Like the sort of LBJ war on poverty or even the war on drugs. Those were long marches. And I don't see Trump going on long policy marches. Yeah. But but why isn't why isn't that, you know, why aren't there rural state senators who are saying this is our cause we're just gonna this is what we're gonna focus on entirely what what are the hard solutions emily like what is what would need to be done well i think some people like joe manchin and you know claire mccaskill have been talking about that and i'm sure there are republicans i should be putting into this category as well so first of all you do have to figure out a way to um have fewer opioid painkiller prescriptions and take those levels down. I mean, the numbers in West Virginia alone of how many, you know, like a small town with just um, millions of these pills are pretty staggering. And that is like that means, you know, that involves the doctors. It involves the people who write the prescriptions and the pharmacies that fill them as much as it does like the wholesale distributors on the back end. The opioid epidemic also goes to these deeper crises of like the American dream and the American soul, you know, people who feel like their lives are getting worse, not better. There was an amazing episode. Did you guys listen to the New York Times, the daily this week um, at the Rexnord factory in um, Indiana, where the woman there who had lost her job um, was just like she was entangled in really difficult family situations. She was someone who had, I think she was making like in the low 50,000s a year, which was like a good income. She didn't finish high, she, she hadn't gone to college. She was really like taking care of a sick granddaughter and a son who wasn't working and trying to get her daughter off to college and just feeling like 
bereft as she was losing this job. And you just had this feeling again, OK, this these were the people she voted for Donald Trump. She believed his promises that, you know, in the whole carrier thing, he tweeted about her company, too. But I it, the idea that there's like a sustained solution as opposed to just like getting everyone really mad about who's taking a knee during a football game. I don't right. think we've seen that. I mean, it's obviously easier to get people riled up about a football game and to play on. I mean, these politicians have been doing these for centuries, get them excited and riled up about cultural things. And the policy changes are are different. But still, you would just expect it wouldn't be so um, that the effort on the opioid issue would be something a, a little bit better than it has been. To, uh, this, is a, this may be a super ignorant question, and I'm sure you guys can smack me down about this. But is one of the problems with the opioid opioid epidemic is that it doesn't um, it doesn't metastasize violence in the same way that other drugs do? It doesn't seem, and, and I could be wrong. It could be there's a ton of violence that stems out of opioids that I'm just not no you're aware right. of. And that, but isn't that a isn't that a problem for fighting it? Because it just becomes it's sort of like oh well, these are people who whose own lives are screwed up, but they're not right. they're not ta- I mean they may be taking out with property crime probably or something, but they're basically not going out and killing people. There's not a lot of drug violence related to this, and which which causes collective action against it. But causes a punitive criminal justice response. I mean, you could argue the opposite. That's actually a huge opportunity, because since we don't have that violence that just usually induces us to put more people in prison, we could really be thinking about social services, especially because these are mostly white people who, you know, the American public or at least politicians tend to be more sympathetic toward that you could see the kind of policy response here that could then maybe translate into helping some people of color in inner cities. But Instead, this is all part of essentially the shredding of the safety net, right? Like what people need are services and some sense that like there's something to fall back on when their lives fall apart. And that is not something that politicians are excited about promising right now. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Although, again, Donald Trump has promised. You're right. I shouldn't say that they don't want to promise it. They don't want to actually supply it. How about that? Yeah, I mean, and there was that weird lack of funding for Rob Portman, who's worked on this issue for a long time, that he wanted as a part of the the first round of health care reform out of the Senate. And there was a, the weird fact that he couldn't get the money he wanted for treatment and programs that in Ohio have been, you know, he's been working on this issue for, I mean, I feel like forever um, he's been talking about it. But um, again, just like, it doesn't seem like it should be so hard. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're sitting in your home, John, preparing avidly for our Chicago show next week, but you still have time to to think about other things. What are you going to be chattering about to the Little Dickersons? Well, in um, Dolphin News, 
there are I have so many. Signs. I have so many thoughts on this, but go ahead. Yeah, well, there, there were um, last week we talked about dolphin fishing, but there was a. It, I had forgotten that I had um, clipped a story about scientists essentially, uh, well, not essentially, scientists dropping a touch screen into an aquarium as a way to try to understand dolphin language and um, interaction. Apparently, the barrier so far has been that while scientists know that dolphins have their own language and a rich variety of noises and thunks and pops and grunts, which all mean things and have, and that dolphins have individual and specific sounds. And one of the problems has been apparently when you get a bunch of dolphins together, it's hard to know which one is talking to whom at what time. And this has been some kind of a barrier to understanding the nature of dolphin language. So back in the 80s, they did a, they submerged a nine by nine foot electronic keyboard that was hooked up to an Apple II computer. And the dolphins learned to use the keyboards to make requests from their human handlers for things like toys or get a belly rub or something. Anyway, that that kind of is being built on with these screens and that dolphins in, that are been held totally in captivity are nevertheless able to play whack-a-mole with fish to um, learn the game of whack-a-mole where a fish um, disappears if you do the right thing. And this is, you know, possibly opening up uh, new ways of understanding what dolphins, uh, how they communicate. Um, and if you can figure out how they communicate, then, of course, we can all drop Latin and start taking dolphin in elementary school. Um, and um, and they will be the first species that we can have, you know, like start texting, you know, at the end of this because we will have learned dolphin language. I would definitely text with some dolphins. That would be fun. God, they'd definitely be more responsive than my kids. Just in dolphin fishing update news, I did hear from uh, GAFAS listener Jeff Ennis, who says that when he goes fishing, often they will accidentally hook a dolphin, and that the dolphin will take out your line instantly, and so you have to cut it fast, because if you don't cut it, the dolphin will spin everything out, and I guess take your rod or something, and that they use hooks that will rust out, so that the dolphin won't suffer but he's never actually boated a dolphin emily what is your chatter oh i thought i would do one of my periodic updates about the state of north carolina which is doing all kinds of interesting things to essentially change the structure of its government in ways that if you worry about <laughs> one party control seem like they they could be a little alarming. So the Republicans have veto-proof control of the legislature in North Carolina. And so the fact that the governor, Roy Cooper, is a Democrat from their point of view is beside the fact. And what they're doing right now is changing how they elect judges. So for the first time in 100 years, a state is choosing to have ju judicial candidates identify by party office. So there'll be an R or a D next to the name of the judge you're voting for. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we usually think of judiciary as like one step removed from politics. This is a step in the opposite direction. They're also redistricting the judicial districts in a way that will hit a whole bunch of African-American judges against each other by the way they're changing the lines. And they also want to reduce the size of the state court of appeals so that Cooper, the governor, can't name replacements for some Republicans who are leaving office. 
And it looks like this will probably go through. And it's like, you know, redistricting the legislative districts in the last few years in North Carolina and other changes they've made to how people get elected and who controls the councils that do the redistricting that establish where polling places are going to be. Just we're talking about like the apparatus of government and of future elections. And it's one of those efforts to really entrench a party in power by changing like the very shape of the government. These kind of signs that we're seeing. And I wonder if this is a model that other states will be interested in following. Oh, God. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't lighten your mood. Oh, my God. All right. My chatter. Let's go back to dolphins. My chatter is, um, first of all, it's uh, I want to say happy birthday to my wonderful, big hearted, wise father, Paul Plotz, who turns 80 today. So happy birthday, Paul. Nice. Uh, Second of all, there's a wonderful uh, anecdote at the top of a wall street journal story this week about the belt tightening that's happening at ge under the new ceo the new ceo is squeezing some previously profligate spending and it begins with the most incredible example about what the former ceo jeff immelt used to do so jeff immelt uh was a ceo for the last 16 years and often doesn't say how often but often when he was traveling um, but always when he traveled for GE, he took a private jet, one of GE's private jets. And often when he was traveling, he didn't take just one private jet. He took a second empty jet to follow his jet to wherever he was going. So that in case there were mechanical problems in his first private jet, he could hop on the second private jet and get where he wanted to go. It's unbelievable. Can you imagine the level of waste and profligacy at a company where they're using two private jets to carry one person to a business meeting. It's Sometimes I take extra socks. It's incredible. The flight crews were told not to discuss the empty plane with other people. It's unbelievable. Oh, my God. <laughs> I want to talk about a uh, great new service that Panoply is offering, which is called Pinna, which is an app, an audio app for kids. They've created a huge library of kids' audio tagged by different ages, by different kind of sensibilities, by different subjects. And it's great. I spent an incredibly happy hour with my nine-year-old on Friday listening. We listened to two interviews with athletes about their how they grew up to become athletes, including uh, Marty Bennett of the Packers. Just super vivid talker about his life. And my son, who's a huge football fan, loved that. Um, they, there's a game show that we listened to several episodes of, which was really fun. And we were competing with each other on this game show. And Pinna has hours of original stories, children's podcasts, audio books. It's safe. It's ad-free. It's guilt-free audio entertainment just for kids and for adults, actually, for me. I it was It was a very happy hour that I spent. And it's a way of keeping your kids uh, off of screens and doing something that engages their mind but doesn't have them just staring at a screen all the time. It's perfect for car time, bath time, group time, bedtime, or any time. That is their slogan, and it's a really good slogan. In our case, it was good for mealtime preparation, cook time, I guess you could call it. So you should go to pinna.fm slash listen, and you'll get a free trial. You can try Pinna for free at pinna.fm slash listen. That is our show for today, the Political Gap Fest. 
produced by Jocelyn Frank. Izzy Road is our researcher. You should check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash GabFest. That's where we Facebook things. Now, there are lots of uh, good posts and conversations in there, facebook.com slash GabFest. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I am David Plotz. We will see you in Chicago next week. You can take tickets to our Wednesday, October 25th show at the Reskin Theater in Chicago at slate.com slash live. We hope to see you there. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.